production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. I'm Elena Johns, a sophomore at Bard High School Early College and a member of the Youth Forum Council. It is my pleasure to introduce today's forum, a conversation on the media's role in today's society. In this age of increasing divide in America, it can be argued that journalists and the media are facing intense scrutiny. Almost daily, Americans read about the shuttering of newspaper and magazines, attacks on the press's credibility, and earlier this year, the criticism turned fatal when a gunman stormed into the offices of Maryland's Capitol Gazette, killing five journalists. A few months ago, David Folkenflik from NPR addressed the City Club and spoke about the importance of journalism. He emphasized the role of the media has the role the media has in the government accountability, saying that quote, people who value transparency are going to see problems in government when good press is not enacted. End quote. The New York Times where publishing of anonymous OEP authored by a senior official of the Trump administration further stresses the relationship between the press and the government. And although the way we engage with news is changing with the rise of social media, freedom of the press remains one of the pillars of the United States, a First Amendment right that has been fiercely protected. So given these changes, what is the role of the press in America today? What do we risk when the, its role is diminished? Joining us today are local experts who will share their thoughts and perspectives. Our panelists include Peter Krauss, a reporter for Cleveland.com's public interest and advocacy team. Some of his recent pieces have discussed bail reform in Cuyahoga County and the Cuyahoga County corruption investigation. And Laura Y. Tartakoff is a senior instructor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, Professor Tartakoff's interests center on poetry, constitutionalism, democratization, democratization, and human rights. In Cleveland, she served as law clerk of the Honorable Frank J. Battisti, U.S. District Court of the Northern District of Ohio, and has taught American constitutional law at Cleveland State University Department of Political Science. Here to guide our discussion is Youth Forum Council member Lauren Shepard. Lauren, I turn the forum over to you. Okay, so... I think we're going to start off our forum with the question of why is being a journalist such an important job in today's society? Uh, do you want to start? Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Thanks to all of you. Why is being a journalist so important always, not only today? Well, just think of our Constitution. Think of that Bill of Rights and that First Amendment. Just not long ago mentioned, one single sentence, 45 words long, and when you see at its heart, Congress, addressed to Congress, shall make no law infringing on the freedom of speech and of the press. This is a cornerstone of democracy, of the multi-party democracy we have. 
So being a journalist today is as important as being a teacher, as important as being a doctor, an attorney. Why? Because freedom of the press is at the heart of our democracy. Without freedom of the press, the other five, four freedoms enshrined in that First Amendment might not survive. What are they? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, which I mentioned, freedom of the press, our subject today, freedom of assembly, of association, and freedom of petition. The press is truly a key. Well, yeah, uh, uh, the, the press is, is, is as important today as it's always been uh, for, for the reasons Laura mentioned, but uh, simply uh, you know, we, the public <clears throat> has a right and a need to know what's going on uh, in its society and in particular with its government and they need to hold their government uh, accountable for what they do. They need to um, uh, ensure that the government is transparent in what they do. Um, and, and, you know, that's a big thing right now with the, with the Trump administration. There's a, a lot of uh, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, holding the Trump administration accountable for the things they say and, 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 and uh, 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 fact-checking the things that are being said, and that's all very, very important. But I'll, I'll just mention one other thing in terms of, of the importance historically. Thomas Jefferson, and I, I'm paraphrasing when I say this, but he, he once said that, if, uh, that he would rather have newspapers without a government than a government without newspapers. And that speaks to the very foundation of freedom of the press, freedom of speech, uh, the ability to uh, uh, share information, uh, uh, safely and completely um, so that uh, you know, the public knows what's going on. Um, so you touched about how without freedom of the press none of the other First Amendment rights would exist. Can you go more into that? Like, Well, one could say to be a journalist <coughs> what the press is, whether we think of print broadcast or digital media. When we think of mainstream media, there are three types. Not only print, I repeat, there's broadcast, meaning radio, mm -hmm. television, and the internet. We know facts. The most important aspect of the press in all its different types is communication, is information, facts. In all newspapers, and Peter knows more than I do, there's usually a news section and an opinion section. And they should be truly, kindly set aside. So to know facts is important, is key. But also to have journalists who practice integrity, journalists who practice impartiality, because the news should not be confused with opinion. I tell my students at Case Western often, you're in college now, subscribe or read online or in print. If you tend to vote for Democratic candidates, you owe it to yourselves to read the Wall Street Journal, editorial pages, editorial pages, opinion pages. The news, hopefully, are news, are factual. If you are inclined to vote 
for Republican candidates, you owe it to yourselves to read the New York, the New York Times. That is, read those who disagree with you. Read different ways of looking. But those who disagree with you, who you tend to trust. And we want to trust journalists in communicating effectively. By effectively, effectively I mean factually, facts not opinions, if they are communicating news. If it is in the editorial pages of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, we know that the Wall Street Journal favors Republican perspective, the New York Times, the Democratic perspective. And hopefully the news in those two dailies are not intermingled, intertwined with opinion. And that's a problem that has come up recently. Recently, I hope you all have a copy of the article from the New Republic, which I photocopied for all of you, because when we speak of fake news, by fake news we mean lies, not factual news, lies. So fake news, inaccurate news, are nothing new. The article I hope you have in your hands from the New Republic tells us what the New York Times acknowledged in 1996, celebrating 100 years because the New York Times was established in 1896. The lies published about China, about the Soviet Union, about Cuba, by journalists who were reporters, not opinion pieces. I hope that that article called Bad News, coming from the New Republic, a trustworthy weekly which is center-left. National Review or the Weekly Standard are center-right. I hope that that article tells you that fake news, inaccurate news, is nothing new. Why? It's humans. Human beings, journalists are humans, professors are humans. I always tell my students, don't believe what I say. Don't believe me. Don't believe any professor or any journalist. Yeah, but, but fake news isn't just being human. No, fake, it, fake news is being, is being deceptive. Well, but that, th those who practice deception and lies happen to be human beings. But all this to say that read those who disagree with you because it'll make your opinions sharper, wiser. Um, so um, how does the idea of, like, quote, alternative facts, which you kind of touched on, play into journalism today? And how do they affect how journalists can do their job? Do you want to answer that? <clears throat> well, alternative facts are are, uh, are, are are lies, basically. I mean, um, you can look at a situation two ways, okay, and you can interpret facts in different ways. And, and we do that, and Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, they'll look at the facts and they'll interpret it in different ways. And that's, that is part of the way we process information. But the facts themselves, should should be indisputable, or they or they should be relatively uh, understood and embraced and accepted. Um, in in today's environment, uh, that's often not the case. I mean, uh, you know, polit not just politicians, but people of all stripes will uh, will just simply deny that something happened, with the idea that if they say it enough, or they say it in a certain way, or they say it to certain people that uh, people will begin to believe something that simply is not true, and we're seeing it all the time. And that's why you've got such a clash going on right now between the Trump administration 
and uh, many of the networks because they're trying to hold him accountable. Others that are in, in more in the Trump camp will, you know, will ignore it and focus on other things. And then you've got those that are so far to the left that they get so overwrought and, and carried away because they can't believe what they're seeing. Um, so hopefully, ideally, you'll have a middle ground um, uh, 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 where uh, journalists will, will call things out as they see them, uh, but still try and maintain uh, a certain level of, of uh, 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 impartiality uh, when they do that. Uh, it's hard, though, right now, especially when you, when you see and hear some of the outlandish things that are, that are going on, because there really is kind of an assault, I think, on... Um, on honesty and integrity right now, and that's unfortunate. And that's all the more reason why we need good, solid journalists to sort out the, sort out the facts, sort out the truth. Do you have anything to add? I have something to add. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake oh. or, because I didn't give you a complete assertion. I tell my students, read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal for this reason or that reason, but I always tell them to read that plain dealer. And well, in a way, course. your articles appear in the plain dealer. It's the only daily in the Cleveland area. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were talking about um, the divide between journalists today. And how do you think that like the differences between the right wing and the left wing affect journalism? And how does reading one side affect the bipartisanship that is in the government? I think the elections of 2016 were so so, and here in Cleveland, where President Trump truly got the nomination in Cleveland, many, many trustworthy individuals were convinced, including trustworthy mainstream media institutions, were convinced Secretary Hillary Clinton would win, but that did not happen. And as a result of that surprise and that truly profound disappointment, one of the reasons Trump has a hatred area. If you look at the number of articles on President Trump in the New York Times, sometimes I just turn the page. Again and again, when some other things are happening in our republic and elsewhere in the world, the obsession with condemning President Trump goes to an extreme. As a result, then we have the other side, as Pete was pointing out, going to the other extreme. Then you have a journalist like Brett Stevens, who has spoken at Case Western more than once. And Brett Stevens leaves the Wall Street Journal and goes to the New York Times because he thinks, well, those who read the New York Times, usually people subscribe to the newspapers that they have affinity with. I tell my students, read this one or read that one, I read both, plus the plain dealer, because I teach. I have to hear both perspectives. I have to communicate with students as completely as possible, different perspectives, because that's what I owe them as a teacher. And so I think the 2016 elections is a reason for this divide we are alluding to, and you have mentioned is a reason for choosing the role of the press today today, even though some aspects have been with us as long as we have the USA. 
and inhabited by humans, our fellow species, and we're all human beings. And so I think 2016 explains to a great extent the divide and the antagonism, the resentment, the obsessions against condemning anything President Trump does or anything positive he does, let's ignore that part. Um, is journalism more or less effective today because of how politically polarized the, um, the media is? Is it more or less effective? Effective. Um, <clears throat> well, it, it's, it's effective it's as, a, as effective as you, as a consumer of journalism, want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, if, if we uh, take in information um, and, and we interpret information uh, the way we want to, if we've got a conservative bent, uh, if we're a Trump supporter, we are, we're really not going to listen very closely to anything that bashes Trump or takes exception to, to what he has to say. Uh, the same way, if, if we're on the far left, where you know we are gonna, we are going to um, interpret facts and look at things that fit our worldview, and and what Laura was saying, this this idea of reading both sides, reading the Wall Street Journal, reading the New York Times, getting two perspectives, drawing your own conclusions about what uh, what's being said. I mean, that's that's an ideal world, and that's the way I think we should all consume journalism. But it's not the way we do it, and. And, and so when you've got journalism that's way out here misleading to the right or way out here misleading to the left, you know, that's not good journalism. That's not effective journalism unless you are trying to steer people in, in a way or to mislead people in a way, and, and then it is effective. So what you have is you, you have to have, have journalists and, and outlets that are, um, that, that are committed to, again, looking at the facts, reporting the facts, maintaining integrity, uh, insisting on um, uh, accountability, and, but also playing fair. And, and that's important because, uh, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the gloves are off right now with, in, uh, with a lot of journalism, and, uh, and that makes it hard to tell an accurate story. Playing fair playing fair, fairness. When I say, don't believe me, check what I say, I mean, I might not be accurate. I might not be objective. No human being can be objective because we all come with a different temperament, different experiences. But Raymond Aron said, Raymond Aron, a famous French philosopher, passed away in 1983. I brought his book, The Opium of the Intellectuals, with me. In The Opium of the Intellectuals, because Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto wrote that religion is the opium of the people. Well, he, Raymond Aron, said, if religion, if religion is the opium of the people, then Marxism, socialism, in the way to communism, is the opium of the intellectuals. But fairness is what we can do. Fairness, how do we define fairness? Not letting one's values prejudge one's conclusions, nor dominate the process of analysis. I repeat, not letting one's values prejudge one's conclusion or dominate the process of analysis. He said this at Harvard. 
and one student in undergraduate. Professor Aron, Professor Aron, how can we do that? How can we be fair given that definition? And he said, making rigorous distinctions. Distinguish between facts, distinguish between sources, know who's Brett Stevens. I mean, giving that example, he didn't say that at Harvard, Brett Stevens is here in Cleveland and Raymond Aron has passed away. But the sources, and see why did Brett Stevens jump from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, making rigorous distinctions, being fair, and not letting the, your values dominate the process of analysis. Well, what I'd like to add there, and I'll conclude immediately because I don't want to take your time, Pete, is a poet. I believe in poetry. And W.H. Auden wrote, Blessed be all rules that forbid automatic responses. Automatic responses, I mean knee-jerk reactions immediately. What I feel, what I feel, no. We're grown-ups. We're not toddlers. Toddlers feel a lot. They throw tantrums. But we are now older, so let's not throw tantrums and not feel. Let's think. Let's reflect. So, blessed be all metrical rules that forbid automatic responses. Force us to have second thoughts. Think again, think again, second thoughts. Ask, was I right the first time? And free us from the fetters of self. Me, 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 I, I, I. So three Fs, forbid automatic responses. Force us to have second thoughts. Free us from the fetters of self. Me, 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 what I think, what I suffered, what I experienced. No, it's through poetry that you can also understand what fellow humans feel and think. And so by practicing those three Fs, I think therefore we can truly make rigorous distinctions and be fair. Even though as human beings, we are humans, we are subjects, we are not objects. That table, that's an object, but I'm not an object, I'm a subject. I cannot be objective, I'm not a cup or a table. And that's what Raymond Aron meant by, but let's be fair. And W.H. Auden, in his lines that I quoted or paraphrased, I think truly explain, for me at least, how can we truly make distinctions in the quest of fairness? So um, the media is experiencing a shift to the internet. And like with the rise of technology, a lot of news is instantaneous. So how is this affecting journalism and how journalists do their work? <clears throat> well, it's, it's affecting it a great deal. Uh, for one thing, it's, um, it's hurt print newspapers. And, and a lot of the older generation, that's where they get their news from, from newspapers. And, and newspapers are not as thick as they were. They're not, they're not delivered as often as they were. Um, so in that regard, um, it's, it's, it's shifting, obviously, the, uh, the way news is delivered uh, to online. And um, now the one big change, though, is you know, it used to be you would write a story uh, and you would, uh, you'd have a deadline and say it was a, it was a morning newspaper, so your, your deadline might be 10.30 at night. And then once that story's been written, it's in the, it, it goes off to the, to the press and then it appears in the paper the next morning, and there's nothing you can do in between. So you've got to make sure you've got it all there. You've got to uh, you know, work extra hard to, to double-check your facts and so forth. Whereas today, 
you know, online, you can get stuff up right away. So you may get a, a nugget of information and you feel it's enough to write a story, you know, about, say it's a, say it's a shooting and you know that someone's been shot and you know where, uh, you know, but you don't know the name or you don't know uh, the condition. Well, you're going you're gonna to put that up uh, online and then you're going to come back maybe in a half hour or two hours later because you're going to be able to update that, that information. So what it's done is it's created this, you know, the 24-hour news cycle. You know, news is constant. It's no longer, you know, no longer ends at 10.30 at night and starts up the next morning. It's, it's instantaneous. Um, and so, so it makes, uh, uh, you know, I, and I think the, temp, the, the, the concern at times, the temptation is to, is to run with things faster, perhaps, uh, when you're reporting for online. Uh, because you want to get it up first, uh, but at the same time, you always know you can come back and you can you can fix things later. Um, but uh, but basically, what it's done is it's just it, it, it's just created this huge beast, this huge demand for information at, that is constantly being you know updated online. But it, but it, but one other point I want to make though is it's also made. A journalist's job a lot easier because it used to be, for instance, um, if I want to do a story about bankruptcy, you know, I would have to maybe drive to the state capitol, go to a bankruptcy court, uh, come back and and re, uh, make prints of what I wanted to to uh, uh, find, and uh, it might take me one or two days. Now I can go online; all that information is right there, instantaneous. So the reporting, because of the internet, the reporting is so much fuller and robust today than it ever was. Uh, the concern I have, though, is that because, you know, we want to throw it up online and because we can always go back in there afterwards, that sometimes we're, we're maybe not as careful as we need to be. Uh, I'm, a, I'm Sam Lehman. I'm a junior at Shagrits High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today we're enjoying a Youth Forum panel discussing the role of the media with uh, Peter Krauss, a reporter for Cleveland.com, and Laura T. Laura Y. Tartikoff, a senior instructor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. Our moderator for today's Youth Forum is Lauren Shepard. Uh, we're about to be in the, begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you would like to tweet your question, please tweet it to at City Club Youth, and we'll ask as time follows. We ask the questions to be brief, to the point, and actual questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and our microphone holders will come to you. Holding microphones today are Youth Council members Akasha Wilberg and Natalie Sapula. May we have first questions, please? Hi there. Thank you so much. I have a quick question. What topics do you think are being underreported today? Topics. Um, hmm. I think many topics. For example, I teach Latin American politics at Case Western. Many aspects of what's going on in Paraguay, the elections, what how Paraguay, landlocked country in the heart of South America, why is it so important? Why is it the only country that recognizes Taiwan when so long ago Taiwan is no longer recognized by the United Nations and so forth? That's one topic that is underreported. Taiwan, Paraguay, Cuba, the women in Cuba the suffering of the ladies in white. When they received from Europe the Saharov Award, not a word in the New York Times. Please, if you ever find something, let me know. Please prove me wrong. I'll be happy to learn I'm wrong. And so those are just two examples. 
other aspects, Switzerland. The, in Switzerland, the longest lasting democracy, a federal republic, a confederation, we are a federation, we have states, they have cantons. I lived many, many years of my life in Switzerland. Switzerland often forgotten, set aside. What's happening? Why are there more Muslims in Switzerland today? And how the Swiss have reacted to that the presence of Islam in Switzerland. Many, I look at many newspapers and weeklies, and I don't know, I, there are many topics I don't see reported at all. I would add to that uh, on a local basis, um, a lot of things aren't being reported like they used to be, and that's a function of a much, much smaller newsroom, which is a function of the, uh, um, the fact that newspapers and, and online, si online sites are, are struggling to make money. We, you know, it used to be when, you know, in the good old days, 30 years ago, the newspaper practically printed money. We had huge staffs at the Plain Dealer. Uh, when I came here 20 years ago, we would send, you know, eight, ten people to an Olympics in another country. Now we cover that Olympics. Uh, one person covers it uh, by basically monitoring the wires and, and uh, maybe you know, making a few phone calls because we, you don't have the staff like you used to. So what are some of the things locally that we're probably not doing enough of? Uh, the environment, you know, keeping track of, of uh, the lake and the rivers and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, Business, we're probably not doing enough to, to uh, cover um, emerging jobs and, and so forth, although the plane dealer had recently or is in the midst of a uh, project in, in that regard. Um, uh, criminal justice, one of the things that I, I cover, you know, it's, it's basically just me. We have a lot of, we have several reporters that cover crime and, and the courts, but the actual issues of criminal justice like, like bail reform and uh, sentencing reform and things like that, you know. Um, we could use a lot more people. We could shed a lot more light on those things, but um, it, it's tough. You have to kind of pick your areas, you know, and uh, you know, and obviously you don't want to. You know, sports is in such demand. You don't, you don't really want to cut back there. Same thing with uh, um, politics and and so forth. But the other side of the the coin is you know, what are some things that we're covering too much of? And I would say, uh, and. and and it's such a turnoff now when I watch, uh, and I tend to watch uh, CNN a lot. Um, and uh, they'll have, they'll be the issue of the day, the topic of the day, and they'll have one, one uh, anchor who will have a panel of four people, and they'll talk an issue to death for an hour. And then it'll be the next person's show, and they'll come on. And they'll have four different people, and they'll talk the same issue to death, uh, and, and really not go anywhere. So it, it, it's, it's kind of this over, uh, overplay on some things, um, and and tremendous underplay on other things. So, so uh, I, you know, it's 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 not um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense sometimes the way we do things. Hi, I'm Sam. I'm a member of the council, and you mentioned how even though we as human beings are subjective, we need to make sure that the news we're reading is as objective as possible. So. Are there ways that we can ensure news from the internet is factual? Are there methods that we can take to make sure that the facts remain in the internet and in our news streams? Um, well, you can go to a reputable website. I mean, that's one of the reasons why at cleveland.com, you know, we, we consider ourselves 
we are a reputable uh, place to, to come to find uh, news that you can trust, um, uh, views that are, that are uh, you know, uh, somebody's, you know, true thoughts. Um, uh, you know, we're not, we're not trying to con anybody or deceive anybody, and we try to present uh, you know, as honest a picture as we can. Um, you know, there are, obviously there are other, other sites, but, uh, but I, think, uh, um, I think most people know, you know, I think you know what, what, where, where you can go to get uh, information that you can trust. I think one of the areas where you've got to be really careful, obviously, is Facebook. I mean, you, you never know what you're getting on Facebook, and I know they're trying to do things now to ensure that there's more integrity on Facebook, but that was, how, that was where, you know, back before the election with all of the fake news, that's where all that was popping up, was on Facebook. I mean, the great thing about the Internet is it's democratized journalism. You know, everybody's a journalist now. Everybody can go to a meeting and, and write something and put it up online, you know, write a blog, uh, put it up on Facebook, Snapchat it, do whatever, okay? But, but, uh, but you, you don't know whether or not whoever's doing that you, you can trust. Um, so you do have to, you do have to know. Uh, I mean, that, that's where Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and reputable uh, news organizations hopefully are going to survive is people are going to realize that they need to know where to go, uh, a, a, a place they can go to trust uh, what, they're, what they're reading. Hi. Um, how do you think journalism can gain funding to increase reporting? Well, the I funding. Can, I, the funding. I can take that one too. Yeah, please, um, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is the that's that's a, a, the big question right now in journalism. You know, as I mentioned earlier, newspapers would sell ads, and you could get a lot of money for those ads, and it was really kind of the place that everybody went: car dealerships, furniture stores what have you, politicians during elections, they went to the newspaper, they paid a lot of money for ads, and that, uh, all that revenue came in and the newspaper could hire large staffs of people and we could cover everything, um, and, uh, uh, and it was all wonderful. Well, the internet basically shifted the source of news from newsprint to online, and unfortunately, very few online news outlets have figured out how to get that ad revenue from the news that they used to get from the from the print edition of the newspaper how they can reproduce it online it's very very tough to do you know we're our organization is trying to do it a lot of our organizations are trying to do it you know there and I think you know ultimately there's it's going to get all figured out um, but in the meantime uh, it's tough there you know it's tough to, to there there isn't a, a steady stream of revenue that there used to be um, I think some of the, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, they're in a different situation um, uh, where they've got national audiences, so they're kind of playing by a different set of rules. But I, I will say that there's two kind of ways of looking at this. Some, some organizations uh, will have what they call a paywall, where, you'll, where you won't get the information unless you subscribe. Um, others want to, uh, others want to, uh, maximize the number of hits that their website gets and then go to an advertiser and say, see how many hits you're going to get if you advertise on this website. Uh, so there's different ways of doing it and nobody's quite figured out exactly what the best method is yet.
seeing as we have both a college professor and a journalist here, I read that this year Liberty University, which is located in the Carolinas, I believe, shut down or fu fundamentally shut down their student paper because of what they were publishing. So I was wondering, what role do student journalists play in increasing awareness of issues among young people? Well, I bet you have fellow students here who work in their high school newspapers. I used to work in my high school newspaper in Puerto Rico, where I grew up. And I never forget when I heard from Puerto Rico's daily, El Mundo, which no longer exists, the daily that paid for my college education at Georgetown, when I read in that newspaper about the invasion of Czechoslovakia, because now we have Slovakia and the Czech Republic. But in those days, it was Czechoslovakia invaded by the Soviet tanks again. I made it a point I had to write an editorial for my fellow students on that issue. So I think it's important for you in high school to communicate with your fellow high school students things that you read in the larger press, make your fellow, your classmates aware. That's a role to play. So am I answering the yeah. question you asked, I wonder? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I would, you know, high school journalists, you guys can do all kinds of things. I mean, the, there's no limit to what you guys can do, except, you know, if the principal says, don't do that. Um, <laughs> you know, and then you're going to say, well, why not? Uh, but no, I mean, why can't you? What is it that you can't investigate that anybody else could? I mean, as long as you uh, can figure out a way to get access to your sources or, uh, you know, uh, whether they're individuals or, or online, I mean, there's, there's uh, you know. But access now to your sources in high school, you have alums, students who went to your same high school you're in now, and for example, here I was in Switzerland, and all of a sudden I had become a Tartakov. That's not my maiden name, but I got married. I never thought anybody would want to marry me, and many people agreed. And so I had to write to my high school a note telling them, here I am, now I have a new name, Tartakov, and telling them a little bit about Switzerland. So Puerto Rico would be aware of Geneva, Switzerland. So again, be in touch with the students from your high schools who already graduated. Who knows where they are? Let them be present too. You know, I'm, when the uh, when uh, in Shaker Heights when Fernway uh, School burned, right? Oh, yes. I mean, I think the Shakerite was one of the first to report on what was going on, if I'm not correct. And uh, um, and 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 I'm you know, my kids or my daughter goes to that school, so I'm a, I'm a little biased, but. I know that particular uh, 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 paper has done some terrific things. So, uh, and it's exciting. I mean, I remember when I had my very first, I, I didn't work for a newspaper in high school and I, and I really didn't work for one in college either. And I was two years out of college before I even got in the business. Um, but I can still remember the very first article I wrote. It was, I was living and working in, in Northern Virginia and it was about some, uh, public forum on drug dealing along the George Washington Parkway in, in Washington, uh, in, in, along the Potomac River. And uh, I knew it was gonna be in the paper, and, and uh, I remember, I, I don't think I've ever been more excited in my life than going to the store and buying a, a copy of the newspaper and seeing my name in, in there for the first time. Um, and you know, there's no reason why in, you can't start a lot, a lot sooner. Um, 
you know, because it's, it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. Uh, namaste. I am Priya from India. Uh, being a journalist, I have so many queries, so many questions to you, but uh, I'll stuck on two only. Uh, one is, in the age of social media or online media, how do you suppose to put a gatekeeper or some kind of tools on the fake news in perspective of America especially? And the second is, when you talk about free media at the same time, shouldn't we talk about the restriction and norms, ethics on uh, media houses to not to melange the image of the country and to spread the positive news instead of the fake news? Or negative news. So, so, uh, so how do you how do you ensure that you, that your your website is not taken over by fake news? Is that is that what you're saying? Or uh, in perspective of especially negative news. Um, well, it, it, negative news. You know, I, a lot of times when I write a story, somebody will ask me, "Is is this story going to be?" Is this going to be a negative story or a positive story? I get that a lot. And I'll say, well, it's not going to be negative or it's not going to be positive. It's going to be a story. I'm going to do my very best to tell, uh, to present it uh, accurately. And if it, if it looks bad for somebody, it looks bad for them. Okay? Or if it looks good for somebody, it looks good for somebody. But it's, it's going to be, uh, I'm going to do my very, very best to give a fair accounting of what, what happens. And, and reputable news organizations, I believe, you know, the journalists that work there far and away, that is what they intend to do. I know that's what we try to do at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Um, and as far as, as um, uh, stuff getting on our website that's, that is uh, uh, deceptive or, you know, first of all, you hire people, you know, who, who uh, uh, have demonstrated that they, you know, they can do the job and, and, uh, and Hopefully they've gone to a school uh, where they've learned about uh, journalistic uh, principles and so forth. Um, and, uh, and you have editors that are keeping an eye on things and, um, and, and who know what's, you know, who maybe have worked in uh, uh, the area where a reporter was working before and they have a lot of you know, institutional knowledge. I mean, that's, that's how you protect against that is, is you, you hire good people and you have a commitment to uh, integrity. Um, is that is that what your is that answer your question? Um, I mean, and as far as how do you keep stuff off of like Facebook or some of these other places? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of buyer beware out there. I mean, there's so much stuff out there that is that is misleading and deceptive. Um, uh, you, you, it's 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 a scary world in a lot of ways. I'm s oh. Excuse me? No, I think uh, my colleague here has said as much as I could say. Thank you for your question. And people are good at deceiving. I mean, it's, people are so good right now at making themselves look reputable um, that you, you, you really got to be careful. And again, that's, I go back to that's what's going to, I think, save journalism in this country is people are going to realize that uh, um, there's value in a Cleveland.com. There's value in, uh, in, in a CNN. I'll, I'll, I'll show my bias. There's a value in, in established, uh, in the plain dealer. When I say Cleveland.com, I mean the plain dealer too. There's value in them because, because 
we know how to do it. Well, can I add something there? There is value indeed in not being cynics. Don't be cynical. Don't be <laughs> idealists. Don't be radical relativists. Cynics, the danger is that then you become nihilists. You don't believe in anything. A well, cynic well, becomes a nihilist. Cynical. Well, I hope we are not. Don't count me in. I'm still too much alive. Yes, that's different. Then when it comes to radical relativism, if everything is relative, radical, I'm not talking about having a different taste. You prefer Mexican restaurants to Indian restaurants or vice versa. Everybody has different tastes in food, in art. Music is one art. A radical relativist says nothing is absolute. Everything is relative. That's false. You cannot be a radical relativist. If you are, you become thoughtless. You have, let's not be judgmental. Let's not be judgmental. I am, that's really lack of thinking. That be, because you become thoughtless. And the danger with being an idealist, so the three truly tragic, life-threatening epidemics in our world, in our civilization, the West, yes, we are Westerners, all of us. Americans are Westerners. Why? Because we have the same roots. One root is we're all, most of us, in our daily lives, Judeo-Christians. There's no Christianity without Judaism. And we are Greco-Romans. We have three branches of government. That comes from the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic only lasted some 400, 500 years. Our founders, the American founders, wanted this republic. The USA, my students, has the longest lasting constitution today. Longest lasting, one reason, because it's the shortest perhaps. Yes, it is the shortest constitution in the West, in Western civilization. Longest lasting, even the Swiss constitution from the 1290s did not last as long as ours is lasting. It's gone. This one is still in effect since 1787. We are in 2018. Correct me if I'm wrong. But don't be cynics. Don't be radical relativists. And don't be idealists. Because the problem of, I believe in ideals, that is believing in feelings. That's being a toddler. We are all too old to be toddlers. We are hopefully growing in wisdom. Hopefully. But inevitably, we are all growing older. Everyone here is growing older. Only happens to the living. We all grow automatically older. So therefore, what's the danger of being an idealist? Of thinking, oh, the United States, is, I don't believe in the United States. Look, there's no e equality. There is, look at how democracy does not work well here. Well, please, please, if you are no longer an idealist because you were a utopian, and the problem with utopianism is indeed great. It has cost lives. Because so many believers in socialism and communism paid with their lives. When you think of Stalin, when you think of Russia and that revolution, only 100 years ago, 1917, we are in 2018, 100 years ago, paid with their lives, they became also cynical. They didn't believe in anything. I don't believe in anything because look at the USA. I don't believe in anything. Look at the Soviet Union. This is not communism at its best. No, no. Therefore, dystopia. You know Huxley. You know Brave New World. You know George Orwell, 1984, um, Animal Farm. Do you know that story? Those books? 
reality. And he was a communist, and Kessler was a communist. And they all realized, no, we were wrong. But therefore, we are not going to become nihilists. We're not going to become radical relativists either. So what can we become? What should I be? Not only you, I'm talking to myself. A critical realist. A critical, what does critical mean? Look at etymology of words. An etymology is the origin of a noun. A noun that gives us adjectives. Critical means asking questions. Asking questions from journalists. Asking questions from your teachers, instructors, parents, friends. Have real conversations. Don't go on around with your ear, ears covered, with these little plugs coming out of your ears. At Case Western, the top students want to hear because they know if I say, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy will not hear me if his ears are covered. The birds are singing. Jimmy is not going to hear the birds either. And they don't cover your ears, my students. And you are not my students, but spiritually you are. And so my students don't. And so don't be cynics. Don't be radical relativists and don't be idealists because the danger is you become utopianists and utopias don't exist. They fail and you might become dystopian and go back to becoming a cynic. I gave this talk so to the- So read a newspaper. Perhaps, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And students, once upon a time, I was invited to talk to parents of first year students at Case Western. And I said what I basically said here. And I saw a hand going like this and I go, yes. And the lady said, I have a question. I go, oh, you know what? One doesn't know what, um, what's your question? Which do you think is the worst of the three life-threatening viruses? Cynicism, radical relativism, or idealism? And you know well, when one doesn't know what to answer, one says, oh, great question. How would you answer the question? I asked the lady. And the lady said, I'm convinced it's idealism. I go, why? She says, I come from New York City. I live very close to the World Trade Center. This is 2001. You know what happened September 11th. She says, you know, I think the culprits, those who truly murdered thousands of Americans in New York City and those airplanes and so forth were idealists. That's why I think, because idealists become fanatics. To become a fanatic, you think you have a monopoly of truth. You own the truth. Therefore, you're giving your life for the truth. Well, well, and to bring that around to journalism is if you're an idealist or, or you know, severely nationalist or whatever, you don't want a free flow of information. Definitely. Definitely right. And, and so that, it, that's what this is all about. It's the free flow of information, the ability to shine sunlight on, on our government, other people's governments, people's activities so that we, we know what's going on, we know if our rights are being trampled on, we know how our taxpayer money is being spent. It's all absolutely vital to um, a, a functioning democracy and a, and a quality of life and a protection of liberty. So what do you think the future of journalism would be with the concept of idealism? Well, I, I think, what I just mentioned, and I think I understand what, what, what she's saying, is that, um, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of journalism, right? I mean, you can, one of the things I do is called advocacy, public advocacy journalism. We take a position on certain things, like bail reform. We have come out and said publicly 
that we believe bail reform is important and it should happen. Uh, so the stories that I write talk about bail reform and how bail reform can come about. When I say bail reform in particular, how uh, uh, defendants are treated uh, after they're arrested and before they go to court, you know, are they given a proper bond? Uh, are, they, are they given help if they need it, you know, for uh, substance abuse um, or, or, or whatever? Uh, so, so, you know, that's, that's uh, so we've, but we've come out and said that publicly. We've, we've said, Cleveland.com, the plain dealer, we believe bail reform is the way to go. So we take kind of an advocacy uh, position on that. Uh, I don't know if you would call that idealism, but it's, it's, it is advocacy. We, we, are, we, are, we are promoting a, a direction that we want to see things going. But the important thing is, is that you're transparent about it. So that when somebody reads that, they say, well, okay, well, Cleveland.com, they're for this, okay? So they can interpret it uh, how they want. But if you, if you're, if you have, uh, uh, if you're idealistic about something or, you know, or, or, and I don't know, maybe uh, um, an example might be, uh, I don't know, like, like if you're on the far left, say socialism, okay? Say you're, say you, you're, you believe in, in socialism. So, Everything that that you write maybe uh, is geared or put through that filter, um, but if you're not if you're not honest about it, you're not straightforward about it. And people don't know that what's, what that's what you're trying to do. Um, well, then you know that's not being completely transparent. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but but uh, but you know, I, I, journalism has a way of uh, like I say of, of shining sunlight, you know, it, on things. It disinfects. Uh, what, what's going on out there uh, as long as, as journalists can, critical. can do their job, are allowed to do their job, and, and it prevents idealists or nationalists or people with extreme ideas from being able to run roughshod over the people. But the problem is that intellectuals, journalists, and teachers, professors are intellectuals we, with our mind. The intellect reigns. And this is a book on intellectuals, plural, in a century of political hero worship. And for some reason, you have journalists and professors who tend to believe, worship heroes, politicians. And this is a new book, just came out last year by Professor Paul Hollander. And you can see the picture, Mussolini and Chavez, political hero worship. Let's not mention Mao and the Castros and the Kims in North Korea. In any case, these journalists, these professors, and these commentators often are truly political hero worshipers. And Paul Hollander presents so much data and facts and so many footnotes. He spent years working on this book. So I highly recommend this book to Paul Hollander. My name is Nicholas Caraballo, a junior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today we have been listening to a youth forum on the role of media today. All City Club youth forums are sponsored by AT&T. We appreciate their generous support for our student programming. We also thank those individuals and foundations, including the William M. Weiss Family Foundation, that provide funding to support free student attendance at City Club forums year-round. Our community partner is the Veal Youth Entrepreneur Entrepreneurship Forum. Additionally, we welcome students from Andrews Osborne Academy, Bard High School, Early College, Cleveland, Facing History, New Tech High School, Lincoln West School of Science and Health, MC Squared STEM High School, 
and Streetsboro City Schools. We thank you all for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Krauss and Ms. Tartikoff. Thank you, Ms. Shepard, for moderating, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.